uh, at work since we began this class, I keep changing it as I go through Acts and determine what, what people we're going to look at. I, I hope maybe I can get settled down this week and have that for you uh, next week. There are so many personalities in Acts, so many characters in Acts that we could look at. It's uh, almost an injustice to, to, uh, to try to do this in, in 12 weeks. Um, <clears throat> and equally an injustice this morning to have uh, 40 minutes to talk about the Apostle Paul. And what do you say? How do you possibly encapsulate the life and the ministry of Paul in, in 40 minutes, and, and the fact is you just don't. So we'll be, uh, we'll be picking and we'll be choosing. I, I want to say, uh, I want to chase one rabbit before we get on the main, main trail here uh, this morning, and it's this. 2011 is the 400th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. First published in 1611. This grand old lady has been serving her God for four centuries. Quite a, quite a significant anniversary in my thinking. Well, the King James Version has been called the single most influential book in the history of books. It's been called the uh, single greatest influence on the shaping of the English language. When William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake in the 1500s for trying to translate biblical languages into modern languages of the day, uh, his last recorded words were, God opened the eyes of the King of England. And just a few decades after that, God opened the eyes of the King of, of England, the most powerful king in the world at that time, King James I. And he authorized the translation which comes, has come to be known, the King James Version um, of, of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's not as widely used now as it was, obvious, for obvious reasons. There, there was a period there where they were producing new translations like newspapers. The Revised Standard Version in 52, New Revised Standard Version, New American Standard Version, New International Version, New International Version Revived, on and on and on. And, and uh, we got caught up, I think, in, in, the, in the magic of all these new translations, which is very important. But I, I remember being a, a young seminary student during that time, and back in the days when I was oh, so very smart, you know, just swimming in the depth of academia, and, and all these new translations just had me heady. It was like I was chasing every new girl in town, you know, a new translation, I'd run by it, and that would become mine. And over, over a period of time, the translation of my childhood I got set aside. I thought it was just too archaic and out of date, and we had all these new translations that we could go to that were more accurate. But I will tell you, the King James Version has a staying power, and there is a beauty to that language. I mean, read Psalm 23 in the King James Version, and then read it in any other version. And it's probably the best version, I think, to, to be read out loud. So I just want to note that 2011 is the 400th anniversary of the King James Version. Um, and I've decided, just as a matter of personal devotion and discipline and thanksgiving, to use the King James Version as my Bible this year. So when I read from Scripture in the course of our class, and perhaps the words don't 
don't look exactly like the words in your modern Bible. That is the reason. It's just a personal thing with me. I, I, I recall about midway through my pastoral ministry, I, um, I picked up a King James Version for, for, for some reason, and I was struck by it. And then I turned to Genesis 1-1, and the beauty there just kind of hooked me, and I read it all the way through. Uh, so this year, my working Bible is King James Version in, in, in a gesture of thanksgiving to God for 400 years service by, by, the, by the King James. So finally, finally the time is upon us now, and let's ask the Lord's blessing and, and get to the Acts of the Apostles. Lord God, thank you for the beauty of creation, both around us and within us. As creation around us burst into color and fragrance and, 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 and bloom and, and reproductivity and harvest, so may your word be planted like good seed on good soil within us and bear equal fruit to the glory of your name, to the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' sake, amen. Forty minutes to do the Apostle Paul. Impossible. So what do I do? I pick and choose. And as my class, I can do that. <clears throat> I want to say two things to you this morning about the Apostle Paul which are meaningful to me. Number one, I think that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Simon Peter are two sides of the same coin. Or to build another picture analogy, they are like two kids on a seesaw. When one goes up, the other goes down. One goes down, the other goes up. Last week, when we looked at Simon Peter, we, in a rather fanciful way, we were a search committee to get a new pastor for our church, and we were looking at all credentials and qualifications, and we pretty much decided halfway through Peter that we wouldn't hire this man to be our janitor. You know, no Episcopal church in its right mind would ever hire a man like Simon Peter for all of his faults and failures. And, and a lesson there is that in the kingdom of God, no one is excluded. Everybody who loves and knows Jesus is eligible to serve. That's kind of the conclusion of at least where I wanted to go with that last week. That regardless of how uh, impulsive and inconsistent and untrustworthy uh, and wishy-washy we may be in life, and regardless of how deeply and profoundly we may sin, like saying, I do not know him, three times the last time with vulgarity and profanity. Anybody ever did anything that bad? Anybody here ever, three times, denied your Lord publicly the last time with cursing? Can you get any lower than that? You can't, can you? Well, when, when he went down, the Lord lifted him up. The lesson of, of, of Simon Peter is that God can take the most meager elements, whether it's a schoolboy's lunch or whether it's an incomplete and broken down old crusty fisherman, and turn him something into wonderful in God's name and for the kingdom's sake. That means all of us are eligible to serve regardless, as long as we know and love the Lord. We're eligible, right? I think... Paul is the flip side of that same coin. In Peter's life, Peter was very simple, and he got raised up. Paul was very complicated and privileged, 
and he got debased. You see where I'm going with this? If someone who's very simple and incompleted can be lifted up by God and used in his kingdom, then so can someone who is elevated and powerful and educated and trained and blessed in this world, by this world, so can he be broken and brought down to the point that he is usable in the hands of God. I think that Peter and Paul are by design, by the design of the author of Acts, Luke, they are held side by side with each other to offer a picture of a complete apostle. One is less and becomes more, one is more and he becomes less. And there are those who are more, more knowledgeable than I who, who in, in their commentaries on the book of Acts say that yes, there's a very great pattern in, in Luke's second volume, the, the Acts of the Apostles, in setting Peter and Paul side by side, that both of them would be lifted up and, and authenticated by, <clears throat> by the early church. And if you think of how far down Paul had to come before God lifted him up, and you think how uh, high the Lord lifted Peter from his humble, simple beginnings, then you've got the total package. You've got both sides of the same coin. Now, Paul gets more attention in Acts than Peter. Peter is roughly the first 12 verses. Paul is roughly the rest of the book of Acts, which would be another 18 verses. Why? Why do you think Paul had more ink than, than Peter? I think it's pretty simple because Luke was traveling with Paul. Luke was a part of the history. He was a part of the story. And so he had more primary information to write about than he did with Peter. Now, now Luke, I think, probably did have some opportunity to cross paths with Peter, but he was not Peter's amuensis. Mark was Peter's secretary. Luke was Paul's secretary. So in anything that Paul writes post-Jesus, the man that he ran with, which was Paul, was likely to get more attention. But, to be hysterically fair, in the un unfolding development of, of the hierarchy of the early church, who became the first pope? Peter or Paul? It was Peter, not Paul. It just tickles me to death that the first pope was married. That he had a mother-in-law. Remember? Peter, the, the first pope, Peter had a mother-in-law. Can you imagine such a thing? Paul on the other side was a bachelor. You see how the two men kind of, kind of fulfill each other, round each other out. Now, I think that Peter and Paul are side by side, as they are and in Luke's second book, to say to us, that what is low, God lifts up. What is high, God brings low. So that all of us who know and love the Lord are eligible to be in our Lord's service. Does that make any sense at all? That is just my hypothesis. I've never seen that written down anywhere. But it seems to me that was the dynamic in those two men. That's the first thing I want to say to you. The second thing is this. 
Paul's life authenticated the high value of personal suffering in the name of Christ. Now we know that Peter had his share of suffering. Uh, he and John were thrown into prison and miraculously rescued by angels. Peter, we think by church tradition, was crucified upside down. Uh, but from what we have written, Peter's suffering was minuscule compared to the suffering of Paul. And the presence of suffering in Paul's call was evident from the earliest days of his ministry. Now you remember the call of Paul. His first name was, original name was Saul. And he was on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus for the purpose of a Jewish inquisition. He had letters of authority from the high priest in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to arrest men and women of following the sect called the Way and drag them out of their houses and bring them to Jerusalem where they would be tried for heresy. We had already seen the execution of one of the original deacons, Stephen, who was stoned because he chided the Jews for their disbelief in the Messiah. And the scripture says, sitting there watching the execution of Stephen, and the clothes of the witnesses laid at his feet was a young man, young man named Saul. So it is this young man, early in his ministry now, going from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute the church there. He is blinded by a heavenly light. There is a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? Wait, let's just let the scripture speak, for, speak to that. Uh, why do you persecute me? Um, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. No modern translation will say that so beautifully. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, to kick up your hind legs against a sharp stick when the shepherd is prodding you along. So Saul has this heavenly vision, hears the word of the Lord, he is, um, he is taken by Ananias to the believers there in Jerusalem, but the Lord speaking to Ananias says, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. If there is an ordination scripture for Paul, this is it. I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And of course, as we read the life of, of Paul throughout um, Acts and, and particularly into, um, into Corinthians, you know, we, we, we have these records of the suffering of Paul. Interesting that near the end of his life, Paul did not brag on how many countries he had visited as a missionary. He did not brag on how many churches he had started. He did not brag on how many converts he brought into the kingdom. He did not brag on how much money he raised for, 
raid for poverty relief in Jerusalem. He did not brag on how many young ministers like Timothy he raised up. You know what, bra what Paul bragged on at least three times at the end of his ministry? His suffering. That which meant the most to Paul was the fact that he had suffered for his Lord who had suffered for him. Let's look at one of those lists in, um, in 1 Corinthians 11 and, and just, just let me try to, to read it. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, I'm sorry. Uh, let me try to read it from the King James. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes save one. There were people who were disemboweled by those, by those whippings. And Paul, five times received the scourging. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. I didn't, I, that never really dawned on me until the other night when I was going over this scripture that Paul was shipwrecked three times. I had images of one, but I didn't realize it was three times. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeying, journeyings often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is offended? And I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern mine infirmities. Now that is incredible. Why is that so incredible to us? Would that statement if I must glory, I will glory in my infirmities. Would that be an incredible statement among African Christians? Would that be an incredible statement among Muslim Christians? If I glory, I will glory in mine infirmities. Would that be an incredible statement uh, in uh, Eastern Europe? Would that be an incredible statement in communist China? What is wrong with the United States of America? We are so cushioned and coddled and comfortable in our religious experience that we do not connect with the central place of suffering in the story of the early church. Why do you think God called Paul to suffer? Well, let's... Um, Let's, let's hypothesize a list. I, I, I used to think that it was a terrible waste for Paul to be in prison in Caesarea Maritima for two years. Uh, two years in that dungeon? Paul, he could be out preaching, he could be out starting churches, he could be out ordaining new ministers. Guess what he did in prison? Ah, he wrote letters to the churches. Guess where they wound up? They wound up in our Bible. I've thought that how could... Paul speak with any more authenticity than to those who were suffering the persecutions, say, under, later under Nero, when the church was scattered, if he had himself had walked unscathed through this world. 
You know, don't you, that the best counselors and the best ministers are those who have been wounded themselves. The wounded healer is the most authentic healer. You go to AA, and who ministers to you? Somebody who's got the same problem you've got. You go to NA, who ministers to you? Person who's got the same problems you've got. Go to Overeaters Anonymous, who ministers to you? Person who's got the same problem you've got. You go to Divorce Recovery, who ministers to you? The person who's been through the same pain of rejection and loss that you yourself have suffered. How could Paul stand in front of a persecuted church without having been persecuted himself? Thirdly, I think, that the call of suffering is a call which keeps us in our place and keeps eternity and omnipotent God before us. Paul had a physical problem, remember? Some people think it was eyes. And he begged God to remove this thorn from his side, a messenger of Satan, he said, sent to torment him. Interesting that God sent an evil spirit, Satan didn't. And it was for a godly purpose. To do what? To keep Paul humble because of his great revelations. So this matter of, of, of suffering for the Lord is a character shaper. And there is a great disconnect in my mind, my looking at the Western church, by Western I mean North American primarily, there is this great disconnect between the Western church and the scripture in terms of any kind of theology of suffering. Why? Because we don't. We just don't. The greatest crisis that might ever befall us is the air conditioner is out one August morning. My uh, oldest daughter, who lives in Newburn, North Carolina, went to Africa last year on a mission trip and came back so humbled by the great distances that natives walk to come to their meetings and to come to their training. It is not good to be too comfortable. I am going through something of a period of loss in, in my own life right now, and, and, and I, I will tell you, uh, I don't like what I see in myself. I am a whiner. I am a complainer. I debate with God. I tell him why he's not being fair to me after all I've done for him. I say things like, what have I ever done to you to make you do this to me? I don't think we would hear those words from a community which incorporated in its own walk a theology of suffering. Because sometimes suffering is redemptive. Sometimes suffering brings us down to where we ought to be. Sometimes suffering pulls away all that which insulates us from the Spirit of God, all the materialism and the self-sufficiency and the money and the comfort, such that we don't hear him clearly. Why don't we hear him clearly? Because we've got too much junk in our lives, and really, one of the best things that God could do for us is take some stuff away and let us suffer a little bit so we can hear him more clearly. A number of years ago, um, <clears throat> I drove from here to Fairmont, West Virginia, just outside of Morgantown, for the express purpose of praying with a young man who 
at that time was probably about 20 years old, who had acute autism. Now, I came at the guest of my oldest daughter again, who is an occupational therapist with a specialist in, uh, specialist in um, specialty in autism, and, and she had noticed a, a great spiritual depth in this young man. But his autism was so profound that he could not speak. He was mute. The way he communicated with the world was he would, he would put an arm like this up on a table, and then his mother would, would place her arm on the table and grasp his hand like, like you would if you were going to arm wrestle. And she would have to exert pressure against his hand in order to stimulate nerves, which would cause him, in turn, to point to letters on a QWERTY typewriter table. You know, QWERTY keyboard. And, and they would unfold this QWERTY table, and she would take, and his name was Brian, Brian's hand, press against it, then he, without even looking at the, at the chart, he, he would be like this, looking around, and he's pointing at these letters, and he's typing out words and paragraphs, and incredible thing to see. Brilliant young man, but mute. Uh, and I just knew that God was going to bless my going all the way to Fairmont, West Virginia to pray over that. But I just knew that God was going to open his mouth and he was going to speak and, and that, that what I thought was best for him was going to happen. As we conversed with this boy, with, with his typing like this on this keyboard, and we began to explain to him what we had hoped, that God would come and, and, and give him speech. He typed out, if God heals me, will I hear him talk to me anymore? And he did hear him. He did, he did hear him. He did hear him. There was a, there was a young lady in that community up there that he went to her and told her that she was pregnant, going to have a little girl, blonde-haired, blue eyes, would be born by the end of August. It came to pass. It came to pass. She didn't even know it. He did hear the Lord, incredibly so. In fact, he, saw, he heard and saw both sides of the spiritual world, both the darkness and the light. But, but he typed out, if God heals me, will I be able to hear him? anymore. And I said back to him, Brian, um, I don't know. Maybe not. He typed out, then I don't want to be healed. And here was a young man brought into the presence of God through terrible suffering. He and his family actually lived in a house that had, had once been a house of prostitution. It was surrounded with evil, all kind of layers of the demonic all around them. And yet in the midst of all this terrible personal loss, he chooses to hold on to his suffering rather than to lose the ability to hear his God talk to him. Now I think at that verse, those words spoken to Ananias about Paul, and I will show him how, much, how great things he must suffer for me, is one of the most theological, profound verses 
in the New Testament for the Western church because we completely acknowledge any theology of suffering. We're rather Jewish and Hebraic in our thinking. That if we're good, we get blessed. We get a lot of stuff. And our health is good. And our marriages are good. And our family's good. And we can pay our bills. And we have a home over our head. And we have wheels under us. And we get educated. And we have friends. And we have great reputations. And, and on and on and on and on. Have you ever thought that maybe it wasn't God giving you that money? God has really blessed us. We've had a good year. Are you sure that was God? Are you sure that God would give you anything that would build up another layer of insulation between him and you? There are times in which um, I just know I hear God speak to me. I just, I just, I just know it. Um, and there's a still small voice. And I recall a time of my own personal travail a number of years ago, and I was very, very broken. And I was in that whining mode. What have I ever done to you for you to treat me like this kind of thing? Complaining to God. Um, and he said to me, suffering is not bad, it's just hard. I know I couldn't make that up. That's too profound. Suffering is not bad. It's just hard. Now, I would want to extend on that in my own thinking and say, yeah, if suffering were bad, you must have hated Paul. But you loved Paul, and you called him out, and you gave him a hard journey. So there must have been some suffering purpose in his life. Then sometime later, still, still whining and complaining for all that I was losing. Uh, again, I was just charging God with all these sins against me. And he said, verbatim, suffering lays the soul bare. Now, I'm not smart enough for that either. But you think of an analogy of physical, physical uh, surgery. It hurts to be cut on. It hurts to have needles stuck in your arm. It hurts to deal with all the anesthesia and all the recovery from surgery. But what does surgery do? It lays bare the source of the problem. And it brings healing. And God said to me, in my complaining about suffering which he was sending, Suffering lays the soul bare. That's why I think having a lot of stuff and a lot of money is not always from God. And we better be careful what we blame on him. And then finally, kind of the end of, of this dialogue with God, <clears throat> he spoke one more time. And he said, all my children, when they come home, wish they had suffered more. All my children, 
when they come home, wish they had suffered more. Now, if I heard him right, there must be something very redemptive and very soul-shaking, very character-building, very way-blasting to open up all the clutter and the insulation and the obstacles between us and heaven, between us and our Creator, about pain and suffering and loss and conflict in our own lives. As far as we know, did anyone in the age of the early church do more for the early church than the Apostle Paul? Contributed more to the Bible than any other single writer. Do you know that we actually know what he looked like? Recent discovery, just outside, let's see, what's the name of that? Uh, um, uh, St. Paul's Basilica outside the walls. That's the name. That's the name of the church. It's, it's, um, it's, in, it's in Rome, and there is a grotto underneath it, uh, and, and uh, uh, archaeologists uh, sanctioned by the Catholic Church in cleaning the ceiling and the walls of this grotto with, with lasers actually have found a portrait of Paul that goes back to the early 4th century, that would be in the early 300s, which matches a physical description of Paul. He was small, if this is, if this is actually him, but the, the archaeologists say that, that it is, and it's, it's kind of a major, major development in biblical archaeology. Uh, he, he, was, he was slight of build, uh, he was mostly bald, except for some hair on the side of his, of his temples. Uh, he had uh, uh, small eyes, which were kind of narrowly set. And he had a very sharply pointed beard, just right here, kind of like a goatee. And you wouldn't think a little guy like that would be so powerful, would you? But he himself said, you know, I don't have a very overpowering appearance. And I don't speak all that well, but I'm going to tell you the way it is, regardless of how unimpressive I may be, you know, when you, when you see me or you receive me. But who else contributed more to the life of the early church, as far as we know, than St. Paul? Who suffered more than St. Paul, than Paul? Anybody know? We have no record of anyone suffering more or contributing more to the life of the early church than the Apostle Paul. Before I left um, West Virginia, after we had gone up to see uh, young Brian and, and prayed over him, and, and God did not open his, his lips and give him speech. And again, good old whiny Briny comes up to God and says, Lord, I drove from Charleston, South Carolina to Fairmont, West Virginia, almost to Pennsylvania, to lay hands on this boy and pray on this boy, to open his mouth to speak, and nothing happened. Where were you? You know what he said? Your idea of perfection is different from mine. It's exactly what God said to me. Your idea of perfection is different from mine. It is in the brokenness, it is in the loss, 
It is in the insecurity. It is in the rejection. It is in the captivity. It is in the poverty. It is in the physical pain, the sickness. It is in the hunger and the thirst and the homelessness. It is in the pain. I think we best meet our God. We are backwards in this country. We are so backwards in this country. A Muslim Christian knows about suffering. Jewish Christian knows about suffering. <clears throat> uh, Communist China Christian knows about suffering. A Rwandan Christian knows about suffering. And they embrace it. But we are fat cats. We have our gods that compete with the God. Sometimes it's financial security, sometimes it's power, sometimes it's reputation, sometimes it's personal pleasure, sometimes it's family, sometimes it's just, well, pick your fame. If there is a singular lesson for me personally from the Apostle Paul, it is this, God's word to Ananias. I will show him what great things he must suffer for my sake. But I'd add a word or two to that. For my sake and for his sake. The early church was born in martyrdom. The early church was born in exile. The early church was born in poverty. And we want to be like the early church. Well, what's missing? God help us to see more clearly the larger, more complete picture of what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Help us to know you as you need to be known. Grant to us courage and strength in times of loss and persecution and suffering. And we thank you when those times come. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.